Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Claire Thomas to Books, Books, Books to discuss her second novel, The Performance, published earlier this year by Hachette. Dr. Claire Thomas has a PhD from the University of Melbourne, where she taught literary studies and creative writing for many years. Claire's first novel, Fugitive Blue, published in 2008, won the Dobby Literary Award for Women Writers and was longlisted for the Miles Franklin. The performance, as I said, was released a little earlier in the year uh, here in Australia and also overseas, and it's been receiving wonderful reviews and great acclaim here and in the US and in the UK. The Washington Post said of it that it was an insightful response to Beckett's 60-year-old classic and a thoughtful reflection on what's burying women in the modern age, a very timely topic. The Guardian in the UK said that the way Thomas plays with the reader is a sort of genius. Claire, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Could you start by telling us what the performance is about? Okay, well, the performance is quite a simple premise. It takes place during a single performance of uh, Samuel Beckett's play Happy Days and it begins as the audience is shuffling into their seats and it ends a few moments uh, after the play also ends. Uh, So it's quite a a contained uh, time frame um, and it focuses on three members of the audience, a 70-something woman, a 40-something woman, and then a, a 20, 20-something woman who's a usher in the theatre. And it goes through um, their thoughts as they're watching the play. Uh, and it's as simple as that, but within their uh, kind of meanderings, it, it, it does go in all sorts of places uh, be, uh, quite beyond the theatre and the auditorium space. As it turns out, they're thinking about a lot of other things apart from what's happening on stage, although that is prompting some of their thoughts. That's right, yeah, and and each of them has have uh, sort of different uh, preoccupations and different ways in which they're engaging with what they're watching as well, and 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 um, they kind of flit in and out of of what they're watching and how they're um, responding to it. Now, before we start our conversation, could you read a short extract from the book, please? Yeah, so this is um, from quite early on uh, and we've sort of just sat down in the theatre and it's from the point of view of um, the character Margot who's uh, in her late uh, in her early 70s and I think that's all you need to know to understand what um, is happening so okay the woman on stage is brushing her teeth toothpaste froths as she vigorously changes the angle of her hand 
Margot despises witnessing this particular bodily behaviour. She's unsure whether it is a behaviour that warrants being performed on stage. It is possibly intended to repulse. Just this morning, Margot scolded John for brushing his teeth before she left the bathroom. His entire process infuriates her. The amount of paste he uses, the state of the bristles on his brush, the height at which he spits, the velocity at which he spits, the length of time between spits, the final sloppy slurp of water, the way he grabs the hand towel, not his own bath towel, and drags it across his mouth so that later she finds dried toothpaste encrusted into the fabric. They have been married for over 40 years. It would help, it would help just a little if he could wait until she left the bathroom. And today, of all days, he should have known she'd be tense. Margot had scolded John without hesitation. It was only later when she was driving to work that her stomach clenched with the truth. She had to be more careful now. She had to be much more careful. Ooh. The woman on stage is trying to get the attention of Invisible Man. Poor Willie. Margot had forgotten about him. Margot saw an amateur production of this play when she was pregnant with Adam and she remembered the woman in the mound and the light. Margot mainly remembered the light. But of course, there's also the man, the absent and useless male. No zest for anything. No interest in life. The woman's genitals are inaccessible. Perhaps that's why he's ignoring her. He can't get to his once preferred orifice. Or perhaps that should be the plural, orifices, if he's a demanding sort. He also seems to have a talent for sleep. Sleep forever. Marvellous gift. The lucky bastard. What Margot would give to be able to sleep for hours without drinking for hours first. These days she cannot fall asleep entirely sober. Would John remember the man in the play? Would John remember going to the theatre at all that night? It was how long ago? It was 42, 43 years ago. Yes, Adam is 42 now. Will Margot ever be unshocked by the fact of herself as the mother of a middle-aged man? She tries to remember the night she saw this play with John at that small studio theatre down the side street in the south of the city. She tries to concentrate on retrieving everything she can about that one night, bringing the details forward as though her mind is an analogue filing drawer. She visualises a series of white index cards moving towards her. This deliberate remembering is a new thing for Margot, a new practice or a new praxis, as certain academics in her department would say. Margot refuses to be patronised by Sudoku puzzles or the cryptic crossword. Lifting a pen towards one of those activities announces you as a gullible geriatric. And she has instead embarked on this careful consideration of her past. She made the mistake recently of telling an old friend about it. That's very Proustian, Professor, her friend mocked. Claire, thank you so much. As you've said, the whole book takes place during a performance of Samuel Beckett's play, Happy Days, in a theatre in Melbourne, as bushfires are raging outside the theatre. We're introduced to the three women at the, uh, who are at the theatre for the performance. One of them's an usher, that's Summer, and Margot and Ivy are audience members. And what we really see is we get a real insight into the interior emotional lives of all of those three women. I want to ask you, first of all, about Happy Days. I gather you saw it first mm -hmm. in Melbourne in 2009. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's about and why mm. you chose that play as the performance these three women were watching? Well, it's about a woman buried up to her waist in the earth and she. it is unclear exactly how long she's been in that state or whether 
or how long she's going to remain in that state. But the play for the entirety of the play, she is buried. And in the second half of the play, she's buried up to her neck. Um, so that's, again, that's it's, it's quite a simple premise, but it's an incredibly strong image. And, and the play is her speaking the bulk of the play is her voice it's it's she's talking about her memories she's talking to some extent about her predicament she's talking about um the environment she's in uh she's she's under a searing light and there is this uh so her name's Winnie and then there is a man we assume to be her husband called Willie and he is not there very often, but he sort of crawls out from behind her mound and kind of grunts at her and goes back in. And there's some interaction between them, um, but the bulk of the play is her speech uh, while she's contained in the earth. Um, so it's an incredibly strong and evocative uh, image. It obviously has got so much um, symbolic, metaphorical potential. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I chose it. Um, it. It stunned me when I saw it live um, and I never forgot it. So there, And there's so much that uh, Winnie talks about that can evoke different kinds of um, feelings in, in the audience. Um so there was that, what, what the play is and what it's about. But there was also a pragmatic aspect to my choice in that it is, in terms of stagecraft, a very simple, strong image. And so there's just one person on stage with an occasional second person. It was very easy uh, to set that up in the novel. So I didn't have, you know, if it had been a play with a large cast, it, I couldn't have done the same thing. So there was the... the the kind of simplicity of the image as well as all the um, symbolic resonances of the image. You said something lovely, I think. You described it as a woman grappling with the everyday and the existential on mm. a dying, ruthless earth. We're going to come back a little bit later to talk about climate and the metaphor yep. there, that the relationship between the play and the catastrophic climatic events which are occurring. Let's just start with each of these three women. Each of them has a lot on her mind. Each of them has really got a lot to think about and we get a really fantastic um, deep dive into each woman's emotions and thoughts. Let's look at each of them, starting with Margot, who's the first one we're introduced to. Mm -hmm. Who is she and what's she like as a person? What do we know about her? Okay, so she's um, a literature professor. She has worked in the university her whole adult life. She's very successful uh, in that space. She's been married to a man for over four decades and she has one son. She's in her 70s, isn't she? She's in her early 70s, yes. And there's th this day before she goes to the theatre, she had a, a meeting with the much younger dean of her faculty who started alluding to questions around retirement. She, she's not she's not interested in that. She's not amenable to that and she doesn't appreciate his jargon either. Um, so, yeah, she's, she's trying to process that uh, conversation and where that, you know, what might happen subsequently. Um, but also there are things going on in her relationships with her husband and her son. Yes, I want to come to those now. I want us mm -hmm. to talk about what it is that she's worrying about, what she's thinking about, 
First of all, let's talk about her marriage to John. As you say, they've been married for over 40 years. Externally, they seem like a pretty well-matched couple. He's a senior doctor. She's a literature professor, been married for over four decades. Can you tell us a little bit about their relationship and, um, and what's happening between them? Well, their relationship is one of kind of um, shared understanding. They're, they're both very smart, and they're, but there's a very physical aspect to their relationship. I kind of touch on that. Um, so they're, they're very, uh, she's, she finds him uh, physically very important, um, and he's that aspect of their relationship has always been a kind of refuge and an excitement to her, um, which other people don't know and she she probably she quite likes that I think that there's this aspect for a relationship that people wouldn't imagine um <clears throat> but in recent times there's been he's been lashing out and she's been um subject to his violence and I don't I don't name it in the novel but um there's implication that that's a, a part of a medical condition it's going to probably become increasingly a problem uh, and she's concerned about the reality of that, that just the, the, the actual um, experience of that, of what that means and how that comes and how unpredictable it is. Um, but also there's a part of her who's that, that's wondering whether uh, this is a manifestation of something that's been lingering for, for a long time and this is now his opportunity to be violent. One thing that's very clear, you make it very clear, is for a long time she hasn't worn or she's always worn dresses with sleeves to hide oh, yeah. dresses. But today and lately it's been very, very hot and she's decided mm. she's not going to do that anymore. She wants to wear a sleeveless dress, she will. Mm. And when she wears a sleeveless dress, there are bruises evident on her body. Mm-hmm. So she realises people are going to see those. Has she told anybody about the fact that John is being violent towards her that he's just started this probably because of his illness but hmm. has she talked to anyone about this no and she hasn't and and the the kind of physical evidence on her body has been exposed if you will for for a time and people haven't asked her mm. and they haven't queried it and she hasn't um she's spoken to his uh, medical doctors about it um, but that's the extent of it. Um, and she certainly hasn't spoken to her um, only their only child. It becomes very clear that the reason she hasn't talked about it is because she's ashamed. And that's obviously an insight into how many victims of domestic violence feel. They feel ashamed. And although they're the victim, not the perpetrator, they carry the shame and the stigma and they're uh, afraid to talk to people about it. Tell us a little bit about the shame she feels and her hesitation in discussing it with anybody. I don't. I don't want to be too explicit about that because I think it's it's complicated for her because she, because there is this medical aspect, and also she tries to kind of objectify the actual bruises. So uh, she she tries to kind of focus on the curious colours of the bruises, or to, to, she tries to, to distance herself um, in that regard. But these bruises bring back other memories of other times in her life when she's mm. subjected to um, violence from men. And the book's called The Performance. There's a lot in Margot's way of moving through the world that is a very well-crafted and successful and effective performance. 
And so this aspect of her life, she's ashamed of it for, for many reasons. And, and one of them is as simple as it's beyond her control and she's deeply uncomfortable about that. But I think she's also ashamed that um, that other people haven't noticed. Mm. Mm. I think that's the level of, and it makes her question the other relationships she has and um, the deficiencies that might be there in her other relationships. Let's talk then about her relationship with their son, Adam. He's 42. That's something that she really starts to think about as well, her relationship with her son. She only has the one child. Tell us a bit about, as at this moment, what her relationship is like with her son. She feels that he's very judgmental towards her. She, he's recently had a, had a baby and there hasn't been a kind of resolution to how they're going to function uh, with this new, the introduction of the new generation, I suppose. Mm. She's the, the, the kind of type of grandmother that she's mm. expected to be or ha- hasn't been defined. That's kind of down the track in her, her thinking. But initially she's just sort of a bit fed up with him being really judgy about mm. everything that she does. She's a bit bewildered as well. She doesn't she really she understand. She doesn't understand it. why because she's she she says early on that she's always been the kind of the third wheel in the in the family unit and that's been fine and that there's very much they they're very um you know peas in a pod to some extent and that's she's she's comfortable with that but that she feels that something has recently sharpened that's made it uh just not the usual kind of thing. There's something else going on there. Yeah. Let's move now to the second woman, Summer. Mm-hmm. Who's she and what do we know about her? Summer is a 20-something who's working as an usher. So she's seen the play a couple of times, but she keeps missing the start because she's got to you know, greet people in the foyer and whatever. Um, she's an acting student. Uh, she's moved to the East Coast of Australia from WA where she grew up with a single mother. Um, She doesn't know uh, hardly anything about her biological father uh, and that's a source of um, ongoing uh, anxiety and discomfort. She's in a relationship with um, a woman called April who is pretty great. April's a tattooist. April did a tattoo on Summer's thigh and that was it. Um, and But in terms of this book, April grew up in the area where the fires are starting to take hold So, and Summer's unsure whether April's going to sort of rush back to her family home and try and help her parents or what's going on in that regard. So that's there's a lot going on for Summer. Summer has got quite a lot of things to worry about, hasn't she? I thought we'd, yeah. just, we'd sort of mention them. You, you've touched on a few of them there. She's worried about who her father is. And there's something that we get that's a little bit unsettling. We're told right from the word go that so Summer's never met her father. Her mother has very fair skin and is very mm. fair skinned. And Summer is very dark skinned. And she's been mistaken over the years for um She's been taken as an Indigenous child. She's had racist uh, comments directed at her. Mm-hmm. So that is certainly something that she's worried about, this issue of her identity, who she really is. 
She's worried about the bushfires. She's particularly worried about uh, the climate. She's worried about her girlfriend April's safety. She's also worried about terrorism. She starts thinking about Burke Street and what happened there, yep. the Ariana Grande concert. But there was something a bit more than this that I thought was interesting. She talks at one stage about being paranoid about how to lead an ethical life. Mm. She keeps asking herself, is she left enough? What cause should she care most about? Would you like just to talk a little bit about Summer and about that insecurity, that self-doubt? Look, she's a very aware person and so with that, um, she she hasn't learned to kind of effectively manage the input that comes at her in the world. So it's often overwhelming. She's She is still trying to wade through everything that's wrong and try and work out what to kind of land on or, or what to focus on the most or where to where to where to give her attention um and there is a sense with her that she's grown up in a kind of false environment where she's got this mother who who insists on color blindness as a way of being and is just in denial of the lived reality of her daughter's experience of being in the world so it 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 sort of builds on that and i think that she's summer's anxiety about the world at large is not unusual for people of her generation if they're if 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 they haven't worked out how to buffer themselves from it all you know yeah and we're getting her 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 real thoughts so she she manages in the world. She 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 goes okay. I mean she she's doing things, but inside she is her mind races Struggling. and yes yes. Let's have a look now at Ivy, the third woman. Tell us about Ivy. What do we know about her? How old is she? What does she do? Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about her. What sort of a person she is? So Ivy uh, is in her early forties. She is at the play because she's got free tickets because the theatre company wants um, she's a philanthropist she's got a lot of money and the theatre company wants her money so paradoxically she gets everything for free and she's aware of that and she's not comfortable about that um, partly because she hasn't always been someone of this kind of level of privilege she's had quite a um, complicated um, upbringing and life um and she's got a little-ish baby at the time of you know on this night she's got a young child uh and we learn more about her story as the as a sort of as the book goes on one thing that you've touched on that I wanted to to talk about is she she's very focused so you said she's got the the one child and that's um Eddie he's 18 months old Mm. And he's really the main thing she's thinking about, isn't she? She keeps, she sees Winnie on stage take something out of a handbag and it reminds her of the toddlers packing up yes. the, the toy box. She yeah. can't wait to get to the week. All anyone that's been a, a mother will know what it's like to, you know, race to the bathroom on the breaks in the play and quickly turn on her camera to have another look at her photos. So she, the main thing she's really thinking about is Eddie, her son, isn't it? Yes. And I, I think that's partly because, um, being in the theatre for someone like her who's probably racing around all day is a moment to just actually stop. Mm. And uh, it's certainly that for both Margot and Ivy. Um, 
you know, they're forced to sit in the same place for a couple of hours. Mm. And so when she's allowed to, she, she, she wants to wallow a little bit in the joy of this child and she's not just a sort of straightforwardly besotted mother but she, but but right now there is there is a lot of joy that she feels for this little person and she and she yeah she wants to be in that headspace i think there's something else that she thinks about and as i say with no spoilers she suffered a great loss some years ago. Yeah. And that's something else that she's thinking about a lot, isn't it? Although that the loss occurred uh, almost 20 years ago, it's something she thinks about a great deal and she still feels a lot of grief about. Yes, and she says at some point that it, it hasn't matured or lost intensity and it's still, it will forever be hovering over mm. her um, and probably any joyful feeling about her eddie um there is this kind of other side to it where the loss is always always permeating um to some extent uh and she hasn't what you know she she's not completely um able to control her emotional responses in that in that regard and we see it at one point yeah, at one point she gets teary, doesn't she? Yes. She suddenly realises that she's teary. She's made herself teary in her thoughts. Yeah. Let's move on now from talking about the characters to look at some of the novel's main concerns, the main themes, in no particular order, but uh, there's obviously a very strong um, theme concerning being a mother and having a mother. And I thought we'd talk about that in relation to each of the three characters. So mm-hmm. let's start with Margot. How did she feel about being the mother of a small child? Did she enjoy that? No, she wasn't crazy about that. Yeah, I think there is a there is quite a spectrum of experience of mother mothering and being mothered in this book. And Margot's experience is one of ambivalence as a as a mother. Um, she kind of got pregnant too easily, and you know she got through. She read the right books. She did the things. She loves him, but she was never. She wasn't consumed, but nor was nor did she have a, a, a terrible time. But she, um, she, she, she always had a, a strong uh, grip on her own personal kind of life trajectory, and her son fitted into that. He didn't divert that life trajectory. There's a great line that I think that you use when you summarise how she feels and you say that Margot feels happiest when her baby is asleep. Mm -hmm. At that time she's contented by the fact of his existence whilst having a respite from attending to his needs. Her son Adam's recently married to Grace and they've had a little baby, Lily, I think Mm -hmm. about seven months old. What's Grace like as a mother and what does Margot think about that? Well, again, this is something that kind of becomes clearer to her as, as her thinking evolves Mm. grace is is um very enthusiastic um about her baby and is quite prepared to um devote her life to the baby at at the the point that where we're at which is different from margot and margot has views about that yes she does um yeah 
But let's talk about Summer now. Mm. So Summer's in her early 20s. She's not a mother herself, but she has a mother, a single Mm. mother, so someone she's had a very obviously strong relationship to, an absent father. What's her relationship like with her mother? I feel that they've been this kind of team, but I feel that, that her mother can't necessarily grapple with all that summer is they adore each other they're not completely frank with each other are they no and and there's one of the the longest kind of the the bit you mentioned earlier where she starts talking about terrorism and bombs and that's actually this kind of imagined response to her mum saying how's your anxiety going summer and fine mum i'm fine fine fine. (laughs) cool okay next question Yes. And and Summer instead imagines what it would be like if she was able to be completely frank and yes. actually tell her the truth and what that would mean and what that would how her mother would be able to, you know, even begin to grapple with, with that level of complexity. Um, but I think that that's I don't think that's a particular relationship that has to be a mother a mother's limitations. I think that in a lot of relationships there can be a person who just is resistant to going beyond the the manageable you know who just some people that just don't want to see the whole thing because it's just too complicated and and it and and unnecessary you can keep on keeping on and that's what they've been doing yeah. Let's look now at Ivy, who is a mother. Ivy's a mother to our baby Eddie, who's 18 months old. And there's two things that you picked out, I thought, in relation to her being a mother that certainly rang very true. One of them, she obviously loves being a mother and she's absolutely delighting in baby Eddie and remembering mother's group and what they've done this morning and books mm-hmm. that they've read. But there's two things she points out. The first is fear. She says, fear is the first lesson, a fear that settles into you as soon as the pregnancy starts. And the other thing that you picked out that I was particularly delightful is that um, Ivy is surprised by how funny it is to have a small child. And she thinks of poo and vomit and farts and how all those things are really quite hilarious. And she says how funny it is to have a child, to be close to such a small embodiment of human absurdity. Seemed to me that there was a tie in there, the whole concept of human absurdity, and we're going to come to talk about Beckett's play shortly. The absurdity of a small child as a sort of metaphor for the absurdity of human life generally, I guess. Did you want to say something about that? And I think that sort of gestures to the importance of humour. And I've had three children and I've had very different experiences each time. And the third one I have found much more hilarious and that has been such a difference. And so it it doesn't change the fact of what you're dealing with or what you're going through necessarily and it's not not rational or... I mean, this sounds so platitudinous, but just the, if you are able to keep some grip on just the comedy there, I mean, that they are so funny if you can wade through um, the challenges and everything else and, and yes. keep a grip on a little bit of the comedy. And, yes, of yes. course, then that is a broader question of how to cope with any kind of existential um, predicament, really. Um, and... So, yeah, she's kind of nailed it a little bit with this one. 
in terms of but she's also got an extremely good situation. I mean, she's not stuck at home. She hasn't had to compromise her life. And she's she's working and she's got, you know, money is hugely helpful when you've got children. And she can do, you know, she can manage it. So in a sense, yes, she's um, able to keep a, a grip on the on the hilarity of little people, but she's also privileged enough to um have the circumstances which enable her to to even function and think properly, you know, which is not a given by any means. Let's talk now about the notion of performance in the novel. That's what the book's called, the performance. Yes. We're looking at three women who are watching a performance. Seems pretty clear that to some extent, and I guess we've talked about it a little bit already, each of these three women is really performing or playing a role, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Tell us about Margot and what, what role is she playing? What performance is well, she putting on? I I sort of feel rather than they've all got a role, I feel more that I was interested in looking at a multitude of performances within a single wife. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they could. I guess we could kind of pinpoint a key role that each of them plays in, in life. I, I think that the, the idea of performance um, comes into play with, with them all in terms of just every kind of interaction and different modes of operating in different contexts with different people inside different relationships, um, in the work environment, in the personal environment, you know, family, friends, e- everything. Everything is different and if you're kind of alert to the way a person adjusts themselves um, according to what they're doing and where they are and who they're with, um, then everything, the the, the idea of performance is just everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe that there's any uh, idea of a a person who, who lives without performance. I mean, yeah, I think that, even getting dressed is a, is a every day and is a kind of costuming. You know, like you can go into it in in a, any arena with any character with any person. I just think the way you show that is very clever. So with Margot, she doesn't really enjoy being the mother of a young baby, but she pretends that she does because that's what you're meant to do. And then I really like with Summer, she pretends to be effortlessly cool no, but we yeah. know that underneath she's very very anxious and she says at one stage performing in the right way each day is exhausting her the, the other aspect with this it's not just performing for external uh, kind of validation there's a lot of sort of self-performance going on so sometimes they're sort of telling themselves things that mm. then as 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 the kind of thinking goes on prove to be uh quite precarious and quite uh, tenuous so that that idea of being effortlessly cool that's really summer's own uh kind of standard that she's set for herself so it's and she even talks about what her younger self would think of her 20 something self and so um it's that there's a lot of self-inflicted um performing and self self-inflicted kind of expectations and ideas of oneself that that come through I thought that we saw it with Ivy too, that mm-hmm. she pretends on the surface to be very 
put together and she looks good. She's beautifully dressed. She looks yep. fabulous. She's very successful. She's wealthy. But for reasons that we won't go into, we see that underneath she's dealing with very serious grief. Yes, and she um, talks at one point about uh, reading a book where, which I don't name in this in my novel, but it's um, Zadie Smith's on beauty. There's a scene where some there's a man who's crying, and he doesn't. He talks about this strange lacrimal um, phenomenon of salt water or something like that, like this really incredibly heightened. Um, objectifying kind of distancing way of describing your own tears and he doesn't recognise them and she's thinking about that and then she thinks, well, I know when I'm crying but I don't, no, hang on, I know what it is when I'm crying but I don't realise I've just started crying and Mm. really is that, that's a sort of um, a real flaw in my kind of consciousness and my evolution as a person, I can't contain, there's a lot, um, about what's meant to be held inside and mm. what leaks out. Um, she beats herself up about that. She yes. says, "If I was more grown up, I'd be able to control." I'd be able this. to control. Yeah, which seemed very harsh. It was very. She was very harsh on herself. Yes, yes. And again, um, there's that that thing of, of of what should be shown and what should be concealed, mm. and that's a similar thing with Margot's bruises. That and the idea that what comes out onto the skin is is something that's meant to be contained inside. You know, it's not meant to be visible. Um, it, blood's meant to be hidden and, mm. and for that to be seen is, is is kind of breaking these boundaries of the ways in which we are visible and invisible, yeah, and what parts of us are invisible and invisible. Claire, let's talk now about the enormous issue of climate change. Mm. It's there throughout your novel. It's right from the word go. We have Margot describing as she walks in how hot she is, how hot it is outside. It's been over 40 degrees for days on end. Mm. The bushfire is raging outside Mm -hmm. and all of the characters in their own way are thinking about this unfolding climate catastrophe, what they all at various stages think about it. Summer in particular experiences a real, I think what's called eco-anxiety. She's very um, thinks very carefully and in a very realistic way about what the disaster is and how it's unfolding. Yep. And then I wondered if you could tell us a little bit, you started by telling us about Happy Days and what it's about and what Winnie is mm. experiencing. I was wondering to what extent is what is happening to Winnie on stage a metaphor for climate change and how we as humans do or do deal with it or should deal with it? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that that's my projection onto the play in that it's a 60-year-old play. Yeah, yes. Um, but I think and I I say that this production that they're watching is an eco-feminist production. So that, that aspect of the play I've pulled out and I'm kind of heightening it because I think it's so clear and there's these kind of <clears throat> disturbing echoes. In the novel I use a very small proportion of the play. So I could have written the same thing I could have written the same kind of concept of three people watching Happy Days and almost not really brought out that that particular thread. I felt it was extremely pertinent and the imagery of the stuckness of the individual and that also kind of extends to the 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 stuckness of these women inside this air conditioned air conditioned bubble of the theater. 
And then more broadly, the kind of futility of individual climate action or how it can often feel like that and what to do and how much agency um, each one of us has and how much capacity each one of us has uh, in this context to, to get out of our own bubbles. There were two themes that I thought you drew out in relation to climate change that I thought did connect perfectly with the play. One of them is the idea of hope. And there's a, a scene in the play, I can't remember which of the characters it is, but Winnie won't put her parasol down mm. because she's hoping it'll protect her from the heat. And whichever character it is looks at her and thinks, that's just futile, that, that umbrella's not going to save you from the heat, you know. Yeah. And it seemed to me that one of the questions you were asking was, how important is it for all of us to have hope that we can control things, that things will be okay, that we can protect ourselves? Or are you saying that hope is really futile in the face of the climate catastrophe that we're facing? I think I didn't want to sort of land on anything definitive. That's the, the handy trick of having three different perspectives um, in it, that they all have quite different attitudes to, to what this means. And I think hope, uh, look, that's a whole other conversation, the, the, the role of hope or the validity of hope or who gets to have hope. Um, and often that is just another way of saying um, hope can be a kind of denial or hope mm. can be... Um, it can be a spur to action. Yes, it, it, it can be generating or it can be buffering to the point of we, everything will be fine. Yeah. Or, you know, so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to elevate hope particularly. And if anything, I think probably in in those in that kind of way, Margot is probably the most hopeful. But she's also because she won't even. She's like at one point she says, oh, "I don't bloody want to think about the planet." Like yes, yes, I'm I'm coughing. You know, the smoke haze is getting to me, and it's cold or it's hot or whatever it is. But she doesn't. She she kind of is. She's learnt how to kind of be in her own life enough to. Um, and she's got a life where she can be in her own life enough to keep on going without looking too closely. So the other theme that I thought came out of the play yep. was this concept of endurance. And yes. We watch Winnie in the play and she's really showed, I mean, she's a woman, first of all, buried up to her waist and then by Act 2 she's buried up to her neck. She's in a really appalling circumstance and mm -hmm. all of the women notice her stoicism and her apparent ability to endure a really, really terrible situation. And again, I suppose I wondered, I thought that there was a bit of a parallel there to each of these three women. Each of these women has suffered a loss or a trauma or is suffering a loss or a trauma of some kind, mm. but each of these women is nonetheless enduring. And again, I wondered, and maybe you're not giving us an answer, but you're, you're opening up the question to us, mm. is that what humans should do? Should they endure, should they persist in the face of the uh, adversity of life generally and climate change in particular? So I suppose there I did see the theme again of the endurance and the stoicism of Winnie on stage and yeah. the, the need for all of us to endure and to be stoic. Yes. Um, I mean, I think that there are, there are so many levels to that as a kind of species. There's not much choice but to endure but from an individual level it's if we're talking about the climate it's very easy for someone in a in a privileged wealthy country with everything they want 
to endure, like some heat, you know. So there's, I I would want to be careful about um, kind of holding up them, these three, as as particularly heroically enduring anything. I mean, they are there. They're sitting in that space. So they've got there. That's all we really know. And Summer, you know, is only just getting through these two hours. And in terms of the play, I think that the the the, the level, the, the kind of stoicism and the endurance or and the the occasional optimism that Winnie expresses resonates even more profoundly in terms of their person, like their smaller problems. Mm. Yeah. Rather than the literal kind of um, physicality of being stuck on the earth. But yeah, hopefully, as you said, it opens up those questions rather than kind of being too definitive about what the answer is. Yes, yes. The last thing I want to ask you about, I'd like to end on a positive note, I guess, after some of those topics we've discussed, I'd like to talk to you about the importance of kindness, how important that is in the novel. We see various examples of various characters either being kind or learning to be kind or someone being kind to them. So we see that when Summer is anxious, April says kind things to her. Mm -hmm. We see that Margot at one point in her life saw a psychologist who had a kind face. And Ivy says when she suffered the loss that she lost, she uh, really appreciated small acts of kindness. Um, And you say, Ivy knows what a glint of kindness can do for another person. So I guess what I wanted to ask you to talk about generally is the importance for all of us of of showing kindness to each other. Oh, that's nice that you've um, kind of retrieved that from all those pages. Yeah, I mean, I suppose this whole... Not the whole idea for this novel came from a place where I wanted to interrogate the quick assumptions that you make about other people. So when you're sitting in a theatre, you don't like mm. the way someone's leaning on an armrest, so they're obviously an asshole. Yes. That person's sucking on a lolly, so they're trying to ruin my night. And that that sort of quick judgement and, and summing people up by what they look like and, and how they behave in a very particular time was something that I wanted to challenge and I suppose I was trying to be kind when I was writing it and even the whole character of Margot, for example, like I've had a lot of experience in the university space and I have been a kind of, you know, undervalued, long-term, casualized employee and I didn't want to write that character. So yeah. I tried to extend my sympathies and and make someone who wasn't, for me, uh, a naturally sympathetic character be a whole person with all all sorts of things going on. Um, So, and I do think going through terrible things like Ivy mentions and as you picked out, if you get, if you survive them, one of the only things that you learn is how important other people's kindness can be. And that how sustaining those small things and and how transformative little interactions are between people in the world and you and you shouldn't underestimate that. And I suppose that's the whole thing is about that to some extent. That seems like a really great place to wind up, Claire. Thank you so much for talking to me about your beautiful book. Congratulations on 
the, the wonderful reviews it's getting in Australia, but also overseas, as I've indicated, in the US and the UK, you've had so many reviews. They've all been positive. Mm-hmm. So a big congratulations. Good luck with promoting it. Hopefully this year, I've been interviewing people for a year now. Hopefully I can start now saying to people, enjoy the writers' festivals, enjoy the literary yes. lunches, enjoy the live events, enjoy the conversations with readers. And thank you so much for, for coming on Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.